just like with people who are integrating socioeconomic decisions, this is something that, for the most part, integrating two-way climate feedback is still very much in the research arena. Um, it's something I'm sort of inadvertently working on, but not as part of the water management strategy yet. There's just no, not computationally feasible at this point in time. But the idea for this is at this point, what we have are models that have a one-way feedback. So you tell it the temperature, you tell it the precipitation, and that can change with time. So you can take a result from a weather forecasting model or RCM or GCM data, but what it can't do is it can't say, okay, I've had um, increased demand for irrigation, which means I have more water put on the surface, which means I'm gonna have more ET, which brings more, more moisture back into my atmosphere, which means downwind I'll have more precipitation. So you can see there's that two-way feedback that's going to be occurring between the climate and these models. So that's where things are heading from just the natural resources front. And there's still, there are some successful models that have been brought this in together, but again, very much in the research arena, very computationally and data intensive, so it's not something that's really been used for a lot of policy decisions yet. And this is me explaining the surface water operations model and the water engineering. <laughs> so basically what you have for this is what you're trying to capture for this, this water management modeling traditionally is you're trying to capture the man-made system. So everything that has been created that wasn't there naturally. So you have reservoirs, you have what they call nodes that represent these reservoirs or um, lakes and whatnot. You have the arrows, which are basically these arcs that represent what's conveying the water. And then you have demands. Where is it finally ending up? Who's drawing water from that? Now, this sounds very simplistic, but what's built into this model is a lot of complexity because it is considering every one of those reservoirs and every one of those, say, irrigation canals and demands has specific rules or specific timing that it's following. So you have a reservoir that if the reservoir is between certain stages, that it distributes the water to the two or three places that it's going to go within a certain ratio. If it drops below that, then it changes. If you're over floodplain, who gets, if you're over your flood stage, who gets that water regardless of whether they want it or not? So all of these models have all of those little rules, all the, uh, the manuals for all of these reservoirs, they're something you have to build and you have to write rules for that to operate by. In addition, you're adding into things like, are they open canals? If they're open canals and you have some um, discharge into the groundwater, you also have ET into the climate. Okay, well, if they're pipes, great, but do your pipes leak? If so, what's the average leakage per mile? So all of these are built into these models. So by and part, both the water management and the natural resources and the water resources models are very complex in themselves. And now we're trying to bring them together because you really can't operate them separately. So here's what we're looking at. We have the natural system and the engineered system. And the biggest issue that we're having with these is, yes, our water resource model can do our runoff and infiltration and everything, but it's neglecting that infrastructure and the operations. It's neglecting how that reservoir runs. It doesn't really, it can't tell you when it's discharging. It can't tell you when the demand from um, one irrigating se irrigation sector is going to come in or when a municipality is going to demand more water. And from the water management side, it knows all that. It knows the storage, it knows the regulations, it knows the demands, it knows those, those schedules, but it negle neglects all those operations on the basin hydrology. It's just assuming the water is going to be there. It doesn't really know how that groundwater surface water exchange operates. 
So now we're linking them. And I'd like to thank um, the U.S. Bureau of, Recl of Reclamation, specifically Ian Ferguson, who lent me some of his slides from a presentation he gave at GSA. Um, it was just handier than me having to make them all from scratch since he sang pretty much what I wanted to say. So this is now how we are going about integrating these natural systems with the man-made systems, the models representing these two. There are three basic approaches. The first one is linking traditional models, and then the example that I'm going to give is one of these. So this is where, if you recall, when I was talking about this sort of the evolution of the integrated surface and subsurface model, the first step was to take two pre-existing models and just iterate between the two, sort of solve one at a time step, take that solution and apply it back in. So that's where we're at with the linking traditional, two tr traditional models. You're taking your operations model and your natural systems model and connecting them together through some parameter, but not running them simultaneously. You're iterating between them. The second grouping is called, uh, called the lumped parameterization. And this one is very much an operations model more than anything. For the most part, what it's taking into account is it is running the operations model as it is, so as a traditional one would be, and it's applied a very basic, for lack of a better term at this point in time, um, natural systems model. So you have something that can take in into account your groundwater and surface water interactions, but not at a very good spatial, you know, your spatial scale is, is huge, your temporal scale is huge, you can't get the details that you would really want for a complex system. So if you have a very simple basin, this might work, or uh, the questions that you have and, and are trying to be answered are very broad, temporally and spatially, then it might be a very good approach. The last one is the physically based. And again, going back to how I explained the integration of the groundwater and surface water models, that last one where you're solving everything simultaneously, you've connected them mathematically within the code and you're solving one matrix, that's what this is aiming for. There are some out there that are doing this, but again, very much in the research arena, hasn't really been used for a lot of policy development. And that's for the most part, they're just so computationally and data intensive. So taking a look at these three, again, sort of the advantages and the disadvantages for the model linkage, it's great, you're still very physically based, you're still remaining very true to those two um, model types that you're bringing in, but your disadvantages, the predominant one is your mismatch in your scale. If you can think about a reservoir release, so suddenly you open the floodgates, let out a reservoir, the time frame and the scale at which that um, front of water is moving, and then imagine the time scale at which the groundwater is reacting. So that's just a temporal scale that is completely mismatched, and that when you link these two together, you really, you really have to be careful how to do it to prevent some serious computational requirements. Because of that, you have calibration issues. Something is trying to run really quickly, you know, that the surface water system, as far as it's concerned, needs to capture what's happening every second. The groundwater system is kind of throwing its hands up and doesn't care what happens until a week later. And so you're going to have calibration issues, and you're going to have uh, time lag issues when you come to those two. Looking at our lumped parameterization, as I kind of alluded to before, the biggest issue with these ones are going to be you're using a very simplistic system for your, your natural hydrology. You're usually, usually, usually using linear parameters. And so if you have a complex system, if you have complex questions to be answered, this is probably not the best tool. It is a very good um, tool for getting some initial ideas or if you are, like I said, having very broad questions 
but if for a specific basin with complex um, rules and complex subsurface hydrology, you're going to want to perhaps steer a little bit away from these ones. And finally, the physically based is great. It's including everything that we want, but high computational requirements, high data requirements, and really at this point in time, not ready to be implemented on a regular basis because the, the, the computational requirements still just completely baffle me. And I couldn't imagine trying to run numerous simulations of one of these to come up with a policy decision at this point in time. So with that, I'd like to go into my example. And I'm going to give an example that is near and dear to probably a lot of people in this room. And the fact that I'm from Kansas and presenting this means that I'm awfully brave. But I will start out with the disclaimer. I moved to Kansas from Canada three years ago. I did not know where the Republican River Basin was until three years ago. My husband is originally from Omaha. He got his bachelor's in water science from here under Ed Harvey. So I have no bone to pick in any fights that are going on or any fights that have gone on will go on. Everything that I say from this point on is my scientific perspective and does not in any way represent Kansas, the state of Kansas, <laughs> and hopefully will not get me in trouble with anyone there. Um, but realistically, everyone is aware of the Republican River Basin. It's an area that's gotten into a bit of contentious issues lately, and I'll go over a little bit of those um, shortly, explaining why this is a big water management issue. So. Most of you probably know, very large basin, about 25,000 square miles in Colorado, Nebraska, and Kansas. A lot of irrigated agriculture, and that's why a lot of people are interested, because it's a big economic boon in all of these states, the agriculture. There are other uses, your municipality, industrial, et cetera. Um, there is a lot of water management here, and this is where it's a good example and a reason why we're using this integrated approach for this, because within the basin itself, you have seven Bureau of Reclamation reservoirs, one Corps of Air Re uh, Engineer Reservoir. And on top of that, we have a large groundwater source. You have the Ogallala Aquifer underlying a great deal of it. In the Lower Republican River Basin, which is where I'm going to be focusing on, we have alluvial aquifers, which we're just as concerned about. And as most people know, why everyone is concerned about this and, and what's causing a lot of issues is this Republican River Compact that was initially ratified in 1943. So a little bit of details about the compact for anybody who isn't all too familiar. It was formally signed at the very end of 1942. And in my paraphrasing of the main purposes, it was to make sure everybody played well together. It was making sure that somebody couldn't point fingers upstream and say it was their fault. It was setting ground rules for the distribution of the Republican River water. It also provided uh, a mechanism for all of the states to go forward with these large-scale water management uh, infrastructure developments. So at the time in 1942, those reservoirs and, and the canals weren't built yet. And it also has a provision in it for changing the compact if you have changes in what's considered the most efficient use, if you have changes in uh, records, or in this case, some people are considering climate conditions. So while it was written in 42 and essentially set in stone at that point in time, it was written so that people could take it to, could vary it in the future if different conditions came up. So after the compact was signed, as I said, it provided a mechanism to do a lot of development in this area. So we saw a lot of dams developed, a lot of reservoirs. Also the irrigation systems that were developed for the 
Canadian who hadn't seen an irrigation system before was baffling. Um, Nebraska, you have over 24,000 irrigable acres from these irrigation systems, and Kansas has about 80,000. The capacity of these irrigation canals are huge, anywhere from 30 cubic feet per second to 230. On top of that, there's over 160 miles of canal. So you talk about an area where you have a natural system that's under stress and a, wa a water management system, a man-made system on top of that. This is a very good example. And on top of those surface water conditions, we also have numerous groundwater wells that are extracting from a variety of aquifers. In the example that I'm going to give, the Lower Republican, we actually don't overlie the Algalala. And the main source of water, when we talk about groundwater wells, is the alluvial wells, so wells alongside the uh, Republican River. And so in 1942, when this was signed, it was signed to administer the Republican River. Because at this point in time, like I said, people didn't consider groundwater and surface water the same thing. So the compact is administering river water, and suddenly we have groundwater wells that are being developed, in particular in that alluvial valley. So those groundwater wells are essentially, like you can see in this little schematic, pulling in some water from, the from that river itself. So now we're running into concerns and problems because people are concerned that we've basically allocated a particular volume of water twice. We've given a groundwater right, but we also have a certain amount of water that we've allocated from a surface water source. So when this came into play, and, and this was realized that all of these groundwater wells are probably impinging upon what's happening in the river as well, some action came about to try to evaluate this. So in 2003, uh, a final sediment stipulation was given to develop a model that tried to take into account how groundwater pumping, and they also accommodated if you wanted to put any re extra recharge back in, was going to change the amount of water and the allocation thereof of the, of the Republican River. So the model that was developed for this only extended as far as the Nebraska-Kansas border, because quite frankly, once it hit Kansas, who cared what they did with it, it was your own problem, and it had, you know, you guys can figure it out and squabble amongst yourselves. So from that, in the Lower Republican River Basin, this model was developed. It was formally acknowledged that, yeah, there might be some issues between groundwater wells that are taking water that was previously allocated to the surface water condition. And so the Repu Lower Republican River started to take a look at what their big concerns are. The predominant ones are we still have a lot more demand than supply. We're still consistently running out. Our junior water rights aren't getting all of the water that they necessarily want. We also have now these minimum desirable stream flow requirements. As I mentioned earlier on, ecosystem health is playing a role. They're sort of getting their fair share of the pie at this point in time and saying you need to have a certain amount of water flowing through this stream, otherwise our ecosystem functioning is gone. We're losing vegetation, we're losing species. So what that means, on the R Lower Republican River Basin is there is a gauge station where if it hasn't met the MDS for I think it's a window of five consecutive days, that you have any of the um, water rights that are dated after April 12, 1984 get shut off. So you can imagine it's obviously gonna be a dry time when this is low and you're a major irrigator and you're told that's it, you're done. You've put so much money into your crops, you put so much money into your field and now you're not allowed to pump. So this is a major concern. This is, and there's also concern in this basin with these hydraulically connected groundwater wells. 
it actually is going both ways. So the groundwater, the person with the groundwater well is concerned about the fact that the surface water system is trying to become more efficient. You're going from a canal that looks like this, where say you have lose 30% of the water, and that's just I pulled out of my head, to your groundwater recharge. So now the surface water and the, the administrators for the irrigation district have decided they want to be more efficient, they want to see more of that water going to their clientele, they're going to line it. So now you've just reduced the amount of water that's infiltrating into those alluvial aquifers by say another 20%. Well, that's now impinging on that groundwater source. So the, ground, the person with the groundwater right is concerned because they're not getting, they don't have access to as much water as they used to have and their resources is essentially going dry. And I like to throw on top of that that I don't really quite know when I model this what I'm going to do with 1950s Buicks on the side of a river canal, but if anyone has an idea, let me know. So the final things that we're concerned about and that we're trying to address with this project that I'll talk about here is how to meet our future demands. We know that we have demands now that we can't meet and they're not going to get any smaller. And finally, how are we going to try to make this system resilient to climate change? We know there's going to be climate variability. We know we're potentially going to see longer periods of drought, um, more intense precipitation. What can we do with our water management system to try to make sure we meet these demands? So the project that we're working under is a water smart basin study. Um, this is administered by the Bureau of Reclamation. This is in conjunction with Kansas, Colorado, and Nebraska. So all three states have a part in this. And the main point of this whole project is to evaluate alternatives to optimize the surface and groundwater use in the Republican River Basin. So looking at our future supply and demand and trying to mitigate any effects of potential climate variability. So for our part, now this project then got split up between the three states. My understanding, and this predates me coming into the project, was originally all three states had submitted a proposal by themselves to study the basin. And the Bureau of Reclamation kindly said, you know what, you guys should try to work together on this. So they brought all three states together, and now each of the three states is working under the same project doing their own model. So our own model within this framework is extending from within Nebraska, the Harlan County Reservoir, down to the Clay Center Gauge Station. We're using uh, downscaled global climate models that the Bureau of Reclamation is providing to us. So the Bureau's part um, for, for in this is providing us with this data. It's not something that we have to do, which is great, because I can't. <laughs> We're using something called OASIS for surface water operations model and we're using hydrogeosphere for our integrated surface and subsurface hydrologic model. Now the climate change scenarios are going to be one-way feedback. Remember how I discussed how it's something that's sort of in the research arena to have that two-way feedback between this, the hydrologic system and the climate? Well, it's not something that we're doing in this case. We're just doing one-way feedback. So those climate, we're just providing uh, precipitation and temperature to the models and not feeding back into that system. Reclamation is developing us for us a wide variety, basically whatever we want, of climate scenarios. Um, they've given us basically what they're basing it on and their baseline for our spatial um, resolution, although they've told us if we want something more fine or something more coarse, they will change it for us. For our surface water operations model, now remember, we're doing the linked approach, so I'm going to explain the two models separately. 
and then explain how we're merging those together. So our surface water operations model is called OASIS. It's developed by a company called Hydrologics. And what is the main purpose for it is it's traditional surface water operations model. So it's doing that um, management of reservoirs and canals, et cetera. And it's been used quite a lot in the US. Um, their stat is that it, it covers basins managing over 15% of the population of the US. So what OASIS does is, as I explained for sort of these traditional models, it simulates water running through this man-made system using a series of nodes, arcs, and inflows. A node is anywhere where you have water, where you're bringing the water to so your demands, your reservoirs, um, any junctions where you have a merger between um, two streams or two rivers or where something splits. You have these arcs, and that's what's conveying the water, so the canal system themselves, or the buried pipelines or above, above ground pipelines. And then you have inflow, so anything else that's coming in, whether it's um, drainage from a ditch somewhere or if you have another tributary coming in that wasn't originally part of the system. What it calculates is it's going to give us our stream flow through each of the arcs, so we'll know how much is going through each canal or each river system, the volume stored in each quote-unquote node, so those demand nodes, those reservoirs and the junctions, and how much is allocated. Calculations are done on a time-step basis, so that's where when we link these two together, we're going to transfer the information from OASIS to hydrogeosphere at each time step. Excuse me. And OASIS does account for the physical constraints and the human control. By physical constraints, I mean reservoir volume and area. We can't store more water in the reservoir than physically possible. Uh, evaporation is taken into account. You can bring in sedimentation. So as uh, you have sedimentation within the reservoir, you'll have less volume that you're able to store. And you just do a basic mass balance of water, which is good. We're not losing or gaining water through like spontaneous combustion or anything. As far as human control goes, this is where you're bringing in those rules and laws that we put in place as humans. Uh, minimum requirements for stream flow, so our MDSs will be built in there. Uh, you'll have the bottom one, the operations agreements is huge. So what are, what are the rules that are set in place as part of the compact? What are the demand patterns at the node? So how does a certain irrigator react? When are they going to want the water? And also, this is where you build in all of those rules that manage each of the reservoir systems. This is just an example of what the uh, OASIS model looks like and what the schematic looks like. What it's including is our water control manuals. So the person who's doing this at the water office is currently sifting through books and books of manuals for a variety of the different lakes and uh, reservoirs and, into, and trying to integrate all of those rules into this model. The MDS is in there. We also have a wildlife management area that has specific rules to uh, the migration uh, of waterfowl. And this is where we're evaluating our alternatives. So the whole part of this study, the whole reason behind the study, rather, is to evaluate alternatives that are going to help us meet future demands and mitigate climate change. And Kansas's approach is they're all going to be structural and operational. We're going to look at what we can change and how we manage our water system, whether it's um, increasing dike heights, whether it's changing our distribution system, um, changing MDSs, changing where we store water, whether we put more into the wildlife area. That's what we're looking at. So all of our alternatives that we're evaluating are within the OASIS model front. 
for a surface and subsurface model. We're using hydrogeosphere. It was developed at the University of Waterloo. Um, it's my understanding that one of the people who initially developed this, Dr. Ed Siddiqui, who was my PhD supervisor, uh, was here earlier last year giving a presentation, so I'll try not to go in too much detail here. It's probably a repeat for a lot of people. But this is a fully integrated model. What it can do is a fairly long laundry list of things, but the key elements are it has 2D overland stream flow, and it also does 3D variably saturated subsurface flow. And it solves this simultaneously. So this is one of those models that has found something to link the two together, puts it all in one matrix, and solves it at the same time. I have a hard time giving a presentation without equations. For those of you who hate them, there's pictures as well. <laughs> I also like to put the pictures in because it reminds people who sit at a desk and model, like me, that I can't do my work without people who go out in the field and collect the real data. If you don't have good data, you don't have a good model. So for the flow equations for our subsurface flow, we're using Richard's equation in the 3D version, and our flux is calculated with Darcy's law. For surface water flow, we're using the uh, St. Venant's diffusive wave equation in 2D, and we're using Manning's equation that regulates our fluxes. And then what we're doing to integrate the solution together is we have a term that represents the movement of water between the surface and the subsurface, and that's this term that's in red. It's a first-order exchange flux driven by the head difference between our surface and our subsurface regime. And again, I have pictures here illustrating this is something that we still can calibrate and can check against field data. You can go out and you can try to measure or capture, at least in point sources, how where the exchange of flux between the surface and the subsurface. So that's the basis of this hydrogeosphere model for the flow system that we'll be using. Now, linking the two together, what we're doing and initially when I had proposed this topic, we had high hopes of being a little further along on this project, but it took a little bit longer to come up to a memorandum of agreement to get it started. But what we're intending to do and what we've started working towards is this separate external code that's going to be used to link them. So what we're going to do is we're running OASIS, sending the information from that to a separate code that's going to reformat it to a, to a, a way that a hydrogeosphere can read it and then send the information back again. What we're exchanging between the two and what we're connecting is from OASIS to hydrogeosphere, OASIS is going to send us all the information about the reservoir releases, how much it's releasing and where it's going within the canal system. It's also going to give us water levels of control structures. These are things that hydrogeosphere currently can't do. It can't do that man-made system. They're working on it, but it's still something they're doing as far as a research basis. From hydrogeosphere to OASIS, the one thing we're passing in is that exchange of water between the surface and the subsurface. So we have the canals. We have a lot of them are still open. Um, we have the river itself, the river um, basin. And so what's the exchange of groundwater and surface water between that? So having this connection between the two, this linkage, means that we can do it at a spatial and temporal resolution of our choosing as opposed to just sort of saying along this entire scheme, we're just going to call it one number that's consistent throughout the year. As far as model development, for the hydrogeosphere portion, we're having four basic phases. Um, we're having what we're considering our pre-development phase, so we're running the steady state up to about 1949 to get a starting point. And then from there, we're doing a post-development, so historical up to 1990, and from 1990 to approximately present to 2010, we're doing recent historical, and then we're going to start into our basically future projections. What we've gotten to so far is our pre-development. 
So this is why the linkage hasn't really mattered yet, because there was no development, there was no man-made system to really try to integrate. What we've brought in is what I consider to be limited subsurface heterogeneity. So we have uh, discerned where the bedrock is, where the alluvium is, and what I'm calling quote-unquote topsoil, so anything that's above the bedrock that wasn't in the alluvial valley. We have our surface soils from the CERGO database. We have land use projection uh, from um, historical photos that were brought in and, and interpreted by our GIS guy. Um, ET is calculated within its own little uh, module in hydrogeosphere. The main issues that we've come up with are subsurface boundary conditions. We don't really know what to put for them, and that stems from the second point, which is the data availability. You can imagine trying to find data to build and then calibrate a model prior to 1950. It's been a little bit difficult. However, the results that we have are quite promising. So this is our surface water results, not particularly exciting. What you're seeing here is a log depth plot, and we have the river showing up where it should be. In addition to that, we're matching reasonably well within about 15 to 20% of all the gauge data that we have available, which isn't a lot, but there was a few gauge stations that we could, or at least estimates of flow um, that we could compare against prior to 1950. For groundwater, this is what our hydraulic head distribution looks like. It's kind of what you would expect. Varies mostly with topography. Fortunately, we do have some um, groundwater level measurements that we can compare against. This is where I start running into saying we don't really have a whole lot of data available. For a basin this large, I'd like to see more than 48 points. But what we do see is we're fairly consistent. We're overestimating by about a meter, and this is something where I really think it's, it's an issue with our subsurface boundary conditions. But again, this is going off of mostly instinct because we don't have the historical data to compare that to. And but we also, you can see, we have a lot of outliers as well. And these are mostly near those boundaries. And they're also in areas where we have had considerable change in the landscape. So I'm going off of DEMs from fairly recent times. Are they representative? We're not really sure because we're pretty sure in the areas that we can point out, specifically those three wells that are clustered below the green line, those are ones that when you talk to people conversationally, they say, yeah, well, that area used to look a lot different to me. And scientifically, I don't know how to interpret that into my model aside from saying, I'm probably okay with those outliers. Finally, to give an example of what we're exchanging into OASIS when we get that link put together, this is the exchange flux. This is what hydrogeosphere will output that's quite valuable and what you get out of these integrated hydrologic models. So this is a spatial distribution of how much water is exchanging between the surface and the subsurface. You can see that predominantly we have a little bit of recharge into the groundwater, and then along the stream we have some variation between areas of a lot of recharge and areas of a lot of discharge. The scale here is quite small, from negative one to one liter per meter day squared, meter squared day, sorry. Um, but it should be noted that the maximum and the minimum is again quite large. So we're in around 20 at our higher areas where we see a lot of flow coming in and out. So this is the information that we're going to process and pass into OASIS. So rather than just having a black box number, it's going to have a value from hydrogeosphere that's been calculated based on this physical representation to try to go ahead and do the operations. The continued work on this project is just developing the code that's linking these two, fine-tuning the pre-development model, again, trying to figure out 
where I can find data from or how to interpret people's general recollection of what it looked like prior to 1950. And then developing the post-development scenarios. And this is where OASIS is, uh, right now Andy, the guy who's doing this, is in trying to incorporate all these operations manuals. And for Hydrogeosphere, what I'm looking to change now, the, a lot of the work has been done. I've got this framework done for pre-development. So for post-development, I have to bring in a new time series. I'm not doing steady state anymore, so I want to see if the changes in precipitation. I also have to alter land use and soil types as things become developed. And the big one for me is the addition of irrigation wells, because this is something that hydrogeosphere alone is going to do. Oasis doesn't do these groundwater wells, so I have to go through and manually enter all the irrigation wells as they cro crop up as time steps on. So in summary, I guess what I was hoping people got out of this talk that was about five minutes longer than I expected it to be um, is the water management system really does contain a lot of large complex systems. It's not as simple as it seems initially when you really get into it. And that current research is trying to build a holistic model that will take all of this into account. And that will be fabulous when it happens, but right now computationally that's not really at the forefront, at least for things that are policy development and bringing that into more of a, a, a consultant and a practical application. Modern water management decision making, so stuff that we can actually do I think is best based upon integrating as many of these systems as is feasible. And I don't just mean feasible based on what your model can do, but what data constraints you have and what financial and, and temporal constraints you have as well. So I think incorporating as much as you can is best, but acknowledging that sometimes you just don't have the money, the time, or the data to do as much as you can. And the coupling with Oasis and Hydrogeosphere, we think for the lower public and river basin is really what we're considering to be um, at this point a state of the science approach to managing water now in the future in this basin. So with that, I'd like to say thank you, and I'll take any questions, and students feel free to run away if um, I went a little long. I apologize. <laughs> That's really good. Um, just curious on what you know about what's happening in Nebraska. I mean, you've done the Kansas side, but upstream of Harlan and then back into Colorado. Um, as far as this project is concerned, uh, I know there's someone in the audience who has a bit more of knowledge about what's going on, but we, are, we do have regular meetings with all of the partners. And so within Nebraska, there's a group that is using the compact administration model, so the model that was done as part of the, the settlement in 2003. And so they're using that for the groundwater, for sort of the natural system, and then they're using something called STELA for a surface water operations model. So at this point, from my understanding, um, they're not, re they're not linking the models together, and they're not necessarily rerunning the, the natural system. They're using the pre-existing model, and then are, is using that data to, uh, to um, help develop their surface water operations. Uh, at this point, I can't remember the alternatives that they're evaluating, but uh, uh, we're still in negotiations because with the budget, um, reclamation can only do, because they're doing an economic analysis as well for us, Reclamation can only do five different alternatives to evaluate, and so there's a little bit of bartering going on as to which of Colorado, Nebraska, and Kansas's evaluations are going to get um, uh, taken into account. One will get given to each state, which was decided yesterday, and then um, sort of the other two are up for grabs as far as what might be the best interest for the basin as a whole. No problem. More questions? 
Well, in technical terms, how much time will this project take? Years? It's a two-year project, mm -hmm. and it's a pretty strict deadline, and that's two years starting, I believe, the memorandum of, of agreement was signed in October. So we're only a few months in already. Um, so we're hoping within a couple of years. But the biggest hurdle for us is going to be writing that linkage between Oasis and Hydrogeosphere and getting all of those um, little hiccups like that, the, the resolution and, and the mismatch between scales taken care of. But once, um, as Nathan is quite aware, Nathan's been using Hydrogeosphere as well, and he's quite aware of the fact that getting the initial steady state simulations and getting something representative and getting it to come to equilibrium is kind of the biggest hurdle in that. And so I'm pretty confident that I've gotten that far. And so the rest is just uh, mostly data rearranging and input. So we're hopeful that by the end of this, so by October this year, we'll be ready to start to do some of the future projections. And then we'll spend a year hopefully evaluating those. And within those future projections, that's where we're adding the um, alternatives that we're evaluating. So the alternatives will be evaluated for each climate variation. So I think we're having uh, what they're calling a, a no change and then three different variations of low change, moderate, and high changes in CO2. And then that will get fed in. And so for each of those scenarios, we'll then look at the five in total. For this case, we'll have one, maybe two um, alternatives to sort of see how all of them react under the different climate change scenarios to then determine which one might be the most feasible and, and might be the one that, that can help things out under all of the climate change conditions. What are technical requirements for hardware? As much as you got. <laughs> um, we have a 48 node cluster at the KGS that we'll be using once we start to get into simulations that um, don't require constant sort of maintenance. Right now, when I run these, I'm running them on my desktop. It's not super fast, but it's something that I can pay attention to because I'm still fiddling with things and still calibrating with that, um, that uh, pre-development model. But once we're moving forward and we're doing a variety of different simulations and a variety of different tests, we'll get it running. There is a parallel version of Hydrogeosphere that we have, and hopefully when we have the linkage brought in, we can do that all on, on um, the cluster that we have to optimize our performance. But it can be done on a desktop. It's just not done very quickly. I'd like to ask this question on your slides. You showed on your one of your slides, you showed only a one-way arrow between the groundwater model and the surface water model. I was expecting a two-way arrow. I would expect that during high floods, the uh, water would seep from the river toward the groundwater. Yeah, and it does. Okay. But it just shows one way the arrow from the groundwater to the surface Oh, it was water. probably just showing recharge, yeah. Well, I think typically, and I, I know which uh, figure you're talking about, and I'm trying to remember. If there was a stream, that might have been where it shows. Cause it, you, Quite rarely will you see water coming back up on the high, on a non-stream type area. So on the lowlands, we do have. So the model does do fluxes both to and from. Very nice. This is working. My next question would be: How do you take into account large-scale irrigation? Within the model, what we're going to do, um, there's been a couple other models done 
within Western Kansas at the, the geological survey, not using hydrogeosphere, but one was using um, ModFlow with a couple of packages built on top. Um, and what we've done there is we will apply the water. So I'm going to have the water that was pumped. We'll know, we know where the irrigation is located. And then our GIS guy is going to give me a variable precipitation map. So we're going to add on top of that irrigation, preferably in the locations where they are. Um, this will come down to our spatial resolution. It's something we haven't resolved yet. So if our spatial resolution is a lot larger than, say, somebody's field, we may run into issues with how to resolve that. But for the most part, we are trying to put the um, irrigation water back onto the surface again and letting the ET within the system recalculate that out and let the thrill fall through. Wells are not uh, metered. So what do you do then when the wells are not metered? Yeah, so you know um, within Kansas they are, and we do cover a bit of Nebraska. So what we're doing, and part of the agreement between all the states was we have an overlap between where Nebraska is modeling their alternatives and where we're modeling. So we're going up to Harlan, we're coming into Nebraska for ours because it's a nice clear boundary that gives us completion for, for our, our basin. So what we're doing in the agreement was that we are going to try to make sure that our results within Nebraska are consistent with what Nebraska's results are doing. So as such, we're going to do what they do in Nebraska. So however they've applied that scenario is what we're going to do in those regions. Um, it's not optimum, obviously, because it's not, you know, I have control issues and I would like to have control over exactly what goes into my model, but because it's three states who have their issues when it comes to the space and trying to come together, we've agreed that, yeah, it, you know, our main interest is knowing what, what crosses the border into Kansas and what we're doing with it there. And so we're just going to do whatever they simulate in their model. And then within Kansas, we have been metered. Um, some of the really historic stuff, you know, you know, 1950 to, I want to say 1970s or so, there will be some guesswork, but all of the recent stuff has been metered or at least reported, and we'll go off of those values. Okay. Thank you. It's perfect time.